the revelation of law in Scripture, considered with respect both to its own nature and to its relative place in successive dispensations. By Patrick Fairbairn Lecture 4 The Law in Its Form and Substance Its More Essential Characteristics and the relation of one part of its contents to another. Continued. Sixth. The only remaining class of statutes and judgments calling for consideration here are those relating to the subject of marriage. The fundamental law on the subject merely declared, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but, as in all other precepts of the Decalogue, so here, what should constitute a breach of the command was left to the moral instincts of mankind. No specific description was given of adultery, nor was a right marriage relationship more nearly defined. But that marriage, according to its proper ideal, consisted of the life union of one man and one woman, and that the violation of this union by sexual commerce with another party constituted adultery, was well enough understood in earlier ages of the world, and especially among the covenant people. Quote, the notion of matrimony has in the Old Testament from the very commencement been conceived in admirable purity and perfection. Already the wife of Adam is called a help at his side, that is, a companion through life, with whom he coalesces into one being. End quote. Genesis 2, 18-24. Kalish. And this being testified of man in his normal state, as he came pure and good from the hand of his Creator, clearly indicated for all coming time what in a family respect should be his normal condition, as is indeed formally stated in the inference drawn from the original fact, quote, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife his wife, the one individual standing to him in that relation, and they shall be one flesh. It was a great thing for the covenant people to have had this view of the marriage relation placed so prominently forward in those sacred records which together formed their Torah, or law. And we see it distinctly reflected both in the dignity which is thrown around the wife in ancient scripture and in the prevalent feeling in behalf of monogamy as the proper form of matrimonial life. The two indeed hang inseparably together, for wherever polygamy exists, woman falls in the social scale. But in the glimpses afforded us of family life in Israel, the women have much freedom and consideration accorded to them, and those of them especially who are presented as the more peculiar types of their class appear in an honorable light as the fitting handmaids of their husbands, the rightful mistresses of the house. Such certainly was Sarah in relation to Abraham and Rebekah to Isaac. And similar examples, ever and anon throughout the history, rise into view of married women who acted with becoming grace and dignity the part that properly belonged to them in the household, as the wife of Manoah, Hannah, Abigail, the prudent and courteous spouse of Nabal, the Shunammite woman who dealt so kindly with Elisha, and others of a like description. 
It was from no fancy musings, but from living exemplars such as these, that Solomon drew his noble portraiture, unequaled in any ancient writing, of the virtuous wife, and pronounced such a wife to be a crown to her husband, and a gift bestowed on him from the Lord. So fully also did the lawgiver himself accord with these sentiments that he allowed the new married man to remain at home for a year, free from military service and other public burdens, that he might gladden his wife, and in the reverence and affection charged on children towards their parents, the mother ever has her place of honor beside the father. In perfect accordance with this regard for woman as the proper handmaid and spouse of man, there is evidence of a prevailing sense in men's minds in favor of monogamy as the normal state of things, while polygamy carried with it an aspect of disorder and trouble. It was not by accident, but as an indication and omen of its real character, that the latter first made its appearance in the Cainite section of the human family, and has its memorial in an address savoring of violence and blood. How strongly the mind of Abraham was set against any departure from the original order is evident from his reluctance to think of any one but Sarah as the mother of the seed promised to him. Only at last, yielding to her advice respecting Hagar, when no other way seemed open to him for obtaining the seed he had been assured of, yet for this also receiving palpable rebukes and providence to mark the course that had been pursued as an improper violation of the divine order. We see this order beautifully kept by Isaac, though his patience was long tried with the apparently fruitless expectation of a promised seed. No thought of another spouse than Rebekah seems ever to have been entertained by him, nor did Jacob purpose differently till by deceit in the first instance, then by artful cozening, he was drawn into connections which brought their recompenses of trouble after them. The sons of Jacob, the patriarchal heads of the covenant people, are at least not known, with the exception perhaps of Simeon, to have possessed more at a time than one wife. Such, more certainly, was the case with Moses, as also with Aaron. And in the rule laid down for the priests, who might be regarded as the pattern men for Israel, it was ordained that each should take a virgin of his own people for wife, purposely contemplating but one such connection. In the later descriptions also of rightly constituted and happy families, the wife is always spoken of as the one spouse and mother of offspring and severe denunciations are occasionally uttered against unfair dealing toward her. So that, while there were unquestionably notorious exceptions, especially among persons in high places, yet with the great mass of the covenant people, monogamy must have been the general rule and the one properly recognized order. Holding this view of the marriage union, the greater part of the statutes bearing on it in the books of Moses present no difficulty. Their obvious design was to guard its sanctity and punish with unsparing rigor its deliberate violation. Sexual commerce with another man's wife rendered both parties liable to the penalty of death. And if the woman, instead of being actually married, was simply betrothed, the penalty remained the same. A man who seduced a girl and robbed her of her chastity was obliged to marry her and pay fifty shekels to her father. 
On the other side, a married woman who was only suspected of having improper intercourse with another was subjected to a severe and humiliating test of her innocence. And while suppositions are made of men having sexual connection with women not betrothed or married, and of entering into relationships not consistent with strict monogamy, there is never any pronounced sanction of their conduct, nor is the word concubine, pilegesh, once named in the Mosaic statutes as a kind of recognized relation separate from and superadditional to that of wife. The nearest thing to it, perhaps, is in Exodus 21.8, where we have the case formerly referred to of a man purchasing a maidservant under a pledge or betrothal to take her to wife or to give her in that capacity to his son. As a maidservant, she was so far in his power that he could, if he so pleased, break his connection with her and cease to keep her as a wife. Yet this is spoken of as a moral wrong. It was dealing deceitfully with her, and as already noticed under the statutes about slavery, he lost his purchase money. The maid regained her freedom, a penalty so far being thus imposed on such capricious behavior. If, however, he should retain the person so acquired for his wife, and at the same time take another, the first was to be continued in her rights, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage. As if still she alone properly stood in the relation of spouse, and the other was superadded merely for show or fleshly indulgence. But did not this also involve a wrong, as well as the former mode of treatment? And was it not an anomaly in legislation that she should have a certain compensation in the one case and none in the other? Nay, that while the man was bound by the nature of the marriage tie to be as one flesh with her, he should not become the same with another person. Undoubtedly, a certain ground existed for such questions and the spiritual guides of the community should have made it clear that men had no constitutional right to act after such a fashion, that in doing so they violated great moral principles, and that the guilt and the responsibility of such procedure were all their own, the judicial statutes of the commonwealth only not interposing against it by specific enactments and penalties. In its moral bearings, the case was very nearly parallel with another, which has been even more generally accepted against, and by our Lord himself was allowed to be justly liable to exception. That, namely, of a divorce executed against a wife for some cause less than actual infidelity. This was the point brought into consideration by the Pharisees. But it is proper to notice, the rather so as the English Bible fails to give a quite correct translation of the original, that it was not the one which formed the direct or formal subject of the statute. Exactly rendered, the passage stands thus. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she does not find favor in his sight, because he has found something of shame or nakedness in her, and he writes for her a bill of divorcement and gives it into her hand and sends her out of his house, and as she has departed from his house and gone and become another man's, and the latter husband hates her and writes for her a bill of divorcement and gives it into her hand and sends her forth out of his house, or the latter husband has died that took her to wife, 
The first husband that sent her away cannot return to take her for his wife after she has been defiled, for that were abomination before Jehovah. And thou shalt not pollute the land which Jehovah thy God gives thee as an inheritance. Thus read, it will be seen that the thing directly forbidden in the passage is simply the return of the divorced woman to be again the wife of the man who had first divorced her. This would indicate a total looseness in regard to the marriage relationship and was to be interdicted as an abomination which would utterly pollute the land. There is marked, indeed, a double or progressive defilement. The woman was defiled by her commerce with another man after being divorced from her first husband, and to remarry her when so defiled was to aggravate the pollution. All, however, that goes before this prohibitory part is simple narration. When a man marries a woman, and is displeased with her, and gives her a bill of divorce, and sends her from him, and another man does after the same manner, not as our translators, after Luther and some others, then let him write her a bill of divorce, and so on. The words do not properly admit of this rendering, and on that very point may be said to turn the diversity of view exhibited in the gospel narrative, the one presented by the Pharisees, the other given by our Lord. They asked, why did Moses command an etelata to give a writing of divorcement and to put away? The Lord replied, Moses, from respect, pros, to the hardness of your hearts, suffered you, epitrepsen humin, to put away your wives. Not a privilege to be enjoyed or a duty to be discharged, but a permission or tolerance merely suffered to continue because of Israel's participation in the evil of the times, their moral unfitness for a more stringent application of the proper rule. The permission in question, so far as the Mosaic legislation was concerned, went no further than not distinctly pronouncing upon the practice or positively interdicting it. The practice, it is implied, was not unknown. In all probability, it prevailed extensively among the corrupt nations among whom Israel was to dwell, since things greatly worse were of everyday occurrence among them. And in so far as any might adopt it, the judicial authorities were not empowered to prevent it. That is all. But whatever rashness or contravention of the proper spirit and design of the marriage relation might be involved in it, this lay still with the conscience of the individual. He was answerable for it. Viewed in respect to the grounds of his supposed procedure, there is a certain vagueness in the form of expression which gave rise, even in ancient times, to very different modes of interpretation. Two chief words in the original, arwat davar, certainly form a somewhat peculiar combination, strictly nakedness of a matter, and as the term for nakedness is very commonly used for what is unbecoming or undecent, it may most naturally be regarded as indicating something distasteful or offensive in that direction. The two great Jewish schools, those of Hillel and Shammai, were divided in their opinions on the subject. The school of Hillel included in the expression everything that might cause dissatisfaction in the husband, even the bad cooking of his victuals, 
While the school of Shammai restricted it to uncleanness in the conjugal sense, defilement of the marriage bed. That something different, however, something less than this, must have been intended, is evident alone from a comparison of other parts of the Mosaic legislation, which ordained that a woman guilty of adultery should be, not divorced, but put to death. It is also evident from the explanation of our Lord, which ascribed this liberty of divorce to the hardness of the people's hearts, and declared its inconsistence with the fundamental principle of the marriage union, which admitted of a justifiable dissolution only by the death or the adulterous behavior of one of the parties. The truth appears to have lain between the two extremes of the Jewish schools referred to, and something short of actual impurity, yet tending in that direction, something unbecoming and fitted to create dislike in the mind of the husband, or take off his affections from her, was understood to form, in the case supposed, an occasion for dismissing a wife. It is also supposed that if such a step were taken, it would be done in an orderly manner, not by a mere oral renouncement, as among some Eastern nations, but by a formal writing which would usually require the employment of a neutral person and perhaps also the signature of witnesses. That this writing should be deliberately put into the woman's hand and that she should thereafter leave the house and go to another place of abode. These things, requiring some degree of deliberation and time, and so far tending to serve as a check on the hasty impulses of passion, are not directly enjoined, as already said, but presupposed as customary and indispensable parts of the process in question. And the liberty thereby granted to the woman to ally herself to another man, coupled with the strict prohibition against a return to her first husband, were evidently intended as additional checks, reasons calling for very serious consideration before the consummation of an act which carried such consequences along with it. Still, the act could be done. No positive statute capable of legal enforcement was issued to prevent it, and was not the license thus granted, however arising, a sign of imperfection? Beyond doubt it was. Our Lord admits as much when he accounts for it by the hardness of the people's hearts. But the person who should avail himself of the license was not thereby justified. No more than in Christian times a wife or a husband who by willful abandonment or criminal behavior turns the marriage bond into a nullity. The Apostle distinctly states that a believing woman is not bound by the law of her husband when he, remaining in unbelief and displeased with her procedure, has forced her into separation. He holds such a case not to be included in the general law of Christ respecting the perpetuity of marriage, except through death or fornication. And, by parody of reason, the same must be held respecting parties, either of whom has become incapable of fulfilling matrimonial obligations by being imprisoned or banished for life. There is here, at least, an approach to the Old Testament state of things arising from the same cause, the hardness of the people's hearts. And for the greater measure of license, and consequently of practical imperfection adhering to the old, the question, in its moral bearings, resolves itself into a wider one. It touches the principle of progression in the divine government. 
For if, in progress of time, the light and privileges granted to men became much increased, should not the practical administration or discipline in God's house receive a corresponding elevation? It stands to reason that it should. And hence, certain things might be tolerated in the sense of not being actively condemned at an earlier stage of the divine dispensations, which should no longer be borne with now. While still the standard of moral duty, absolutely considered, does not change, but is the same for men of every age. There is the same relative difference and the same essential agreement between the church in its present and at its ultimate stage on earth, the period of millennial glory. Things tolerated now will not be then. It is further to be borne in mind that this, above all other points in the social system, was the one in respect to which Oriental stood at a relative disadvantage, and that feelings and practices were widely prevalent which would render stringent regulations of a disciplinary kind worse than inoperative with a certain class of persons. There was comparatively little freedom of intercourse prior to marriage between the sexes, especially among those who were of age. In many cases, espousals were made for the young rather than by them. Multitudes found themselves joined in wedlock who had scarcely ever seen each other, never at least mingled in familiar converse, and often, too, they came from such different classes of society and spheres of life, especially when the wife was purchased as a bondmaid or taken as a captive in war, that it would have been a marvel if estrangements, jealousies, tempers that repelled each other rather than coalesced into a proper unity of heart and life did not at times appear as the result. Still doubtless, the moral obligation remained, growing out of the essential nature of the marriage relation, and no way invalidated but enforced by the tenor of the Mosaic revelation that the parties should cleave one to another and abstain from all that might tarnish the sanctity of their union or mar the ends for which it was formed. But in such a state of things to exclude by positive and rigid enactment any possibility of relief, even for such as did not in their hearts realize that obligation, could only have tended to produce a recoil in the opposite direction. It would have led them probably to resort to violent measures to rid themselves of the hated object, or to employ such treatment as would have made death rather to be desired than life. The general regulations of the judicial code in respect to marriage, as well as to other points of moment, thus appear to admit of justification when they are considered with reference to the actual condition of the world. But when particular cases are looked at, as they arose in the subsequent history of the people, things are certainly sometimes met with of which it is difficult to find any adequate explanation. The case, for example, of Elimelech, a Levite, and apparently a man of probity, not only married two wives without any specific reason assigned, but one of these, Hannah, a person of distinguished piety, and the subject of special direction and blessing from heaven. Much more the case of David, and that of his highly gifted and honored son Solomon, adding wife to wife and concubines to wives without any apparent consciousness of wrong in the matter. 
yet all the while possessing the more peculiar endowments of God's Spirit. And though receiving counsels, revelations, sometimes also rebukes from above, still never directly reproved for departing on this point from the right ways of the Lord. It is true, on the other hand, they had no proper warrant for what they did. They sinned against law, judicial as well as moral law. And it is also true that painful results attended their course, such as might well be deemed practical reproofs. Such considerations do help us a certain way to the solution. We can say no more. Perplexing difficulties still hang around the subject, which cannot, meanwhile, be cleared satisfactorily away. Only they are difficulties which relate to the practical administration of affairs rather than to the divine constitution of the kingdom. There are certain things in other departments of which the same might be affirmed. But for all in the old economy that bears on it the explicit sanction of heaven, though formally differing from what is now established, the principle so finely exhibited by Augustine in his contendings with the Manichees is perfectly applicable. Having compared the kingdom of God to a well-regulated house, in which for wise reasons certain things are permitted or enjoined at one time which are prohibited at another, he adds, So is it with these persons who are indignant when they hear that something was allowed to good men in a former age which is not allowed in this. And because God commanded one thing to the former, another thing to the latter, for reasons pertaining to the particular time, while each were alike obedient to the same righteousness, and yet in a single man, and in a single day, and in a single dwelling they may see one thing suiting one member, another a different one, one thing permitted just now, and again after a time prohibited, something allowed or ordered in a certain corner, which elsewhere is fitly forbidden or punished. Righteousness is not therefore various immutable, is it? But the times over which it presides do not proceed in a uniform manner just because they are times. But men whose life on earth is short because they are not able intelligently to harmonize the causes of earlier times and of other nations, of which they have not had cognizance, with those wherewith they are familiar, though in one body or day or house they can easily see what would suit a particular member, particular times, particular offices or persons, take offense at the one, but fall in with the other Number three. There yet remains to be noticed the third great division of the law, namely the rites and ceremonies which more directly pertained to religion, or as it is very commonly designated, the Levitical Code of Worship and Observance. In what are called the statutes and judgments which immediately succeeded the delivery of the Ten Commandments, there is scarcely any reference made to ordinances of this description. A few words were spoken to the people respecting the kind of altar they should erect, implying that sacrifices were to form an essential part of worship. Also respecting the consecration of the firstborn for special service to God, the offering of the first fruits, and the appearance of the males annually at three stated feasts before the Lord, but that was all. And it was only after the covenant had been formally ratified and sealed with blood over the ten words from Sinai, 
with those supplementary statutes that the ritual of the Levitical system, in its more distinctive form, came into existence. From its very place in the history, therefore, it is to be regarded not as of primary, but only of secondary moment in the constitution of the divine kingdom in Israel, not itself the foundation, but a building raised on the foundation and designed by a wise accommodation to the state of things then present, and by the skillful use of material elements and earthly relations to secure the proper working of what really was fundamental and render it more certainly productive of the wished-for results. The general connection is this. God had already redeemed Israel for his peculiar people, called them to occupy a near relation to himself, and proclaimed to them the great principles of truth and duty, which were to regulate their procedure, so that they might be the true witnesses of his glory and the inheritors of his blessing. And for the purpose of enabling them more readily to apprehend the nature of this relation and more distinctly realize the things belonging to it, the Lord instituted a visible bond of fellowship by planting in the midst of their dwellings a dwelling for himself and ordering everything in the structure of the dwelling, the services to be performed at it and the access of the people to its courts, after such a manner as to keep up right impressions in their mind of the character of their divine head, and of what became them as sojourners with him in the Lamb that was to be emphatically his own. In such a case it was indispensable that all should be done under the express direction of God's hand, for it was as truly a revelation of his will to the members of the covenant as the direct utterances of his mouth. It must be made and ordered, throughout according to the pattern of things presented to the view of Moses, while the people on their part were to show their disposition to fall in with the design by contributing the materials requisite for the purpose and fulfilling the offices assigned them. The connection now indicated between the revelation of law in the stricter sense and the structure and use of the sacred dwelling comes out very strikingly in the description given of the tabernacle which, after mentioning the different kinds of material to be provided, begins first with the Ark of the Covenant, the repository, as it might be equally called, of the Decalogue, since it was merely a chest for containing the tables of the law, and as such was taken for the very seat or throne from which Jehovah manifested his presence and glory. It was, therefore, the most sacred piece of furniture belonging to the tabernacle, the center from which all relating to men's fellowship with God was to proceed and to derive its essential character. To break this link of connection between the ceremonial and the moral, or to invert their relative order as thus impressed from the first on the very framework of the tabernacle, had been virtually to reject the plan of God and frustrate the design contemplated in this part of his covenant arrangements. For those who practically ignored the revelation of truth and duty in the Decalogue, there was properly no house of God in Israel, no local throne in connection with which they could hold communion with the living head of the theocracy and present acceptable worship before him. And for such as did acknowledge and own that revelation, there could be only this one. The fundamental truth that Jehovah, the God of Israel, is one Lord 
before whom no other god can stand, nor even any form of worship be allowed which might countenance the idea of a diversity of nature or will in the supreme object of worship, this must have its expression in the absolute oneness of the place where Jehovah should put his name, and where in the more peculiar acts of worship he should be approached by the members of the covenant. The place itself might be different at one time from what it was at another. It was left, indeed, altogether undetermined at what particular point in the chosen territory, or even within what tribe, the sacred dwelling should have its location. This might change from one period to another. The dwelling itself also might, as the event proved, change its exterior form, pass from the humble tent to a gorgeous temple. But its unity must ever remain intact so as to exclude the entrance of different theocratical centers, and thereby prevent what would, in those times, have been its inevitable sequence, the idea of a plurality of gods to be acknowledged and served. When we proceed from the sacred dwelling itself to the institutions and services associated with it, we find only further proofs of the close connection between the Levitical Code and the Decalogue, and of the dependence of the one upon the other. Quote, the Levitical prescriptions, says Weber excellently, follow the establishment of the covenant and its realization in the indwelling of Jehovah in Israel. They are not conditions, but consequences of the Sinaitic covenant. After Jehovah, in consequence of his covenant, had taken up his abode in Israel, and Israel must now dwell before him, it was necessary to appoint the ordinances by which this intercourse should be carried on. Since Israel in itself is impure and is constantly defiling itself, because its natural life stands under the power of sin, it cannot quite directly enter into fellowship with Jehovah. But what took place at Sinai must be ever repeating itself. It must first, in order to meet with Jehovah, undergo a purification. Hence, one department of the ordinances of purification in the Levitical part of the law. But even when it is become pure, it still cannot approach Jehovah in any manner it may please, but only as he orders and appoints. It will not, in spite of all purifications, be so pure as that it could venture to approach immediately to the Lord. The glory of the Lord enthroned above the cherubim would consume the impure. Therefore must Israel come near to the Lord through priests whom he has himself chosen, and still not personally, but by means of the gifts which ascend in the fire and rise into Jehovah's presence, nor even so without the officer having been first covered from the fiery glance of the Holy One through the blood of his victim. This is the second part of the Levitical law. It would be impossible here, and besides is not required for the purpose we have more immediately in view, to go into all the details which belong to a complete and exhaustive treatment of the subject. It will be enough to indicate the leading points relating to it. There is then, first of all, in the Levitical Code, a teaching element, which leans upon and confirms that of the Decalogue. The grand lesson which it proclaimed through a multitude of rites and ordinances was the pure, the good, have access to God's fellowship and blessing.
the unholy, the wicked, are excluded. But who constitute the one class and who the other? Here, the Levitical Code may be said to be silent, excepting insofar as certain natural and outward things were engrafted into it as symbols of what, in the spiritual sphere, is good or evil. But for the things themselves which properly are such, it was necessary to look to the character of God, the head of the theocracy, and as such the type of all who belong to it, to his character especially as revealed in that law of moral duty, which he took for the foundation of his throne in the center of his government in Israel. There the great landmarks of right and wrong, of holy and unholy in God's sight, were set up, and in the Levitical Code they are presupposed, and men's attention called to them, by its manifold prescriptions concerning clean and unclean, defilement and purification. Thus its diverse washings and ever-recurring atonements by blood bespoke existing impurities, which were such because they were at variance with the law of righteousness imposed in the Decalogue. The Decalogue had pointed, by the predominantly negative form of its precepts, to the prevailing tendency in human nature to sin. And, in like manner, the Levitical Code, by making everything that directly bore on generation and birth a source of uncleanness, perpetually reiterated in men's ears the lesson that corruption cleaved to them, that they were conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. The very institution of a separate order for immediate approach to God, and performing in behalf of the community, the more sacred offices of religion was, as already noticed, a visible sign of actual shortcomings and transgressions among the people. It was a standing testimony that they were not holy after the lofty pattern of holiness exhibited in the law of Jehovah's throne. The distinction also between clean and unclean in food, while it deprived them of nothing that was required either to gratify the taste or minister nourishment to the bodily life, granted them indeed what was best adapted for both, yet served as a daily monitor in respect to the spiritual dangers that encompassed them, and of the necessity of exercising themselves to a careful choosing between one class of things and another, reminded them of a good that was to be followed and of an evil to be shunned. And then there is a whole series of defilements springing from contact with what is emphatically the wages of sin, death, or death's livid image, the leprosy, which, wherever it alighted, struck a fatal blight into the organism of nature and rendered it a certain prey to corruption. Things the very sight and touch of which formed a call to humiliation, because carrying with them the mournful evidence that while sojourners with God, men still found themselves in the region of corruption and death, not in that brighter and purer region where life, the life that is incorruptible and full of glory, forever dwells. Viewed in this light, the law of fleshly ordinances was a great teaching institute, not by itself, but when taken, according to its true intent, as an auxiliary to the law of the two tables. Isolated from these and placed in an independent position as having an end of its own to reach, 
its teaching would have been at variance with the truth of things, for it would have led men to make account of mere outward distinctions and rest in corporeal observances. In such a case, it would have been the antithesis rather than the complement of the law from Sinai, which gave to the moral element the supreme place, alike in God's character, and in the homage and obedience he requires of his people. But, kept in its proper relation to that law, the Levitical Code was for the members of the Old Covenant an important means of instruction. It plied them with warnings and admonitions respecting sin, as bringing defilement in the sight of God and thereby excluding from his fellowship. That such, however, was the real design of this class of Levitical ordinances, that they had merely a subsidiary aim and derived all their importance and value from the connection in which they stood with the moral precepts of the Decalogue, is evident from other considerations than those furnished by their own nature and their place in the Mosaic legislation. It is evident, first, from this, that whenever the special judgments of heaven were denounced against the covenant people, it never was for neglect of those ceremonial observances, but always for palpable breaches of the precepts of the Decalogue. Evident, again, from this, that whenever the indispensable conditions of access to God's house and abiding fellowship with his love are set forth, they are made to turn on conformity to the moral precepts not to the ceremonial observances. Evident, yet again and finally, from this, that whenever the ceremonial observances were put in the foreground by the people as things distinct from and in lieu of obedience to the moral precepts, the procedure was denounced as arbitrary and the service rejected as a mockery. Besides the teaching element, however, which belonged to the Levitical institutions, there was another and still more important one, which we may call their mediating design. Here also they stood in a kind of supplementary relation to the law of the Ten Commandments, but a relation which implied something more than a simple re-echoing of their testimony respecting holiness and sin. Something, indeed, essentially different. For that law, in revealing the righteousness God demands, from its very nature, could make no allowance or provision for the sins and shortcomings by which those demands were dishonored. It could but threaten condemnation, and, with its cry of guilt, under the throne of God, terrify from his presence those who might venture to approach. But the Levitical Code, with its mediating priesthood, its rites of expiation, and ordinances of cleansing— had for its very object the effecting of a restored communion with God for those who, through sin, had forfeited their right to it. While it by no means ignored the reality or the guilt of sin, nay, assumed this as the very ground on which it rested and so far coincided with the Decalogue, it at the same time secured for those who acknowledged their sin and humbled themselves on account of it a way of reconciliation and peace with God. The more special means for effecting this was through sacrifice, the blood of slain victims, the lifeblood of an irrational creature, itself unconscious of sin, being accepted by God in his character of Redeemer for the life of the sinner. 
A mode of satisfaction no doubt in itself unsatisfactory, since there was no just correspondence between the merely sensuous life of an unthinking animal and the higher life of a rational and responsible being. In the strict reckoning of justice, the one could form no adequate compensation for the other. But in this respect it was not singular. It was part of a scheme of things which bore throughout the marks of relative imperfection. The sanctuary itself, which was of narrow dimensions and composed of earthly and perishable materials, how poor a representation was it of the dwelling-place of him who fills heaven and earth with his presence! And the occasional access of a few ministering priests into the courts of that worldly sanctuary, an access into its inmost receptacle by one person only, and by him only once a year, how imperfect an image of the believer's freedom of intercourse with God, and habitual consciousness of his favor and blessing. Such things might be said to lie upon the surface, and could not fail, as we shall see, to give a specific direction to the minds of the more thoughtful and spiritual worshippers. But there still was, in the structure of the tabernacle and the regulated services of its worship, a provisional arrangement of divine ordination, by which transgressors, otherwise excluded, might obtain the forgiveness of their sins and enjoy the blessings of communion with heaven. Through this appointed channel, God did, in very deed, dwell with men on earth, and men who would have been repelled with terror by his fiery law could come nigh to his seat and in spirit dwell as in the secret of his presence. One can easily see, however, that the very imperfections attendant on this state of things required that its working be very carefully guarded. Definite checks and limits must be set to the possibility of obtaining the blessings of forgiveness, for had an indefinite liberty been given to make propitiation for sin, and to wash away the stains of its defilement, how certainly would it have degenerated into a corrupt and dangerous license? The Levitical Code would have become the foster-mother of iniquity. The ready access it gave to the means of purification would have encouraged men to proceed on their evil courses, assured that if they should add sin to sin, they might also bring victim after victim to expiate their guilt. Therefore, the right and privilege of expiation were limited to sins of infirmity, or such as spring from the weakness and imperfection of nature in a world abounding with temptation while sins committed with a high hand, that is, an open and deliberate violation of the great precepts of the Decalogue, were appointed only to judgment as subversive of the very ends of the theocracy. So that, here again, the Levitical Code of Ordinances lent on the fundamental law of the Decalogue and did obeisance to its supreme authority. Only they who devoutly recognized this law and in their conscience strove to walk according to its precepts, had any title to an interest in the provisions sanctioned for the blotting out of transgression. Then, as now, to walk in darkness, or persistently adhere to the practice of iniquity, was utterly incompatible with having fellowship with God. 
One thing further requires to be noted respecting the Levitical institutions, which is that while under one aspect they constituted the rights and privileges of the Israelite, under another they added to his obligations of duty. They took the form of law, as well as the Decalogue, and willful violators of its prescriptions were not less amenable to justice than those who were guilty of gross immorality. And the reason is obvious. For these Levitical ordinances of purification bore on them the authority of God, as well as those which related to the strictly moral sphere, and to set them at naught was to dishonor God. It was also to make light of the means he had appointed, the only available means of having the guilt of transgression covered, which therefore remained unforgiven, yet aggravated, by the despite that was done to the riches of God's mercy. Yet practically, the difficulty and the danger did not lie much in this particular direction. Though guilt was no doubt frequently incurred by neglecting the provisions and requirements of the Levitical Code, yet this was sure to be preceded and accompanied by the far greater guilt of violating fundamental precepts of the Decalogue. And hence, it was always guilt of this latter description which drew down the heaviest judgments. If anything, indeed, has more clearly discovered itself than another from the whole of this investigation, it is the fundamental character of the Decalogue, its preeminent and singular place in the revelation of law. This was itself emphatically the law, and all besides, which bore that name was but of secondary rank, and derived its proper value and significance from the relation in which it stood to the other. Hence, the prominent regard, as in due time will appear, which, in the use of the term law by our Lord and his apostles, was had to the moral precepts of the Decalogue. Hence also, the groundlessness of the statement, which has been often made by modern writers, that the distinction with which we are so familiar between moral and ceremonial was not so sharply drawn in the books of Moses, and that precepts of both kinds are there often thrown together, as if, in Jewish apprehension, no very material difference existed between them. It is easy to pick out a few quotations which give a plausible support to such a view. But a careful examination of the subject as a whole, and of the relation in which one part stands to another, yields a quite different result. And Mr. Morris does not put it too strongly when he says, quote, the distinction between these commandments and the mere statutes of the Jewish people has strongly commended itself to the conscience of modern nations, not because they have denied the latter to have a divine origin, but because they have felt that the same wisdom which adapted a certain class of commands to the peculiarities of one locality and age must intend a different one for another. The Ten Commandments have no such limitation. All the subsequent legislation, though referred to the same authority, is separated from these. All the subsequent history was a witness to the Jew, that in the setting up of any god besides the unseen deliverer, and in the fancy that there could be any likeness of him in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the waters under the earth, in the loss of awe for his name, in the loss of the distinction between work and rest as the ground of man's life, and as having its archetype in the divine being, and as worked by him into the tissue of the existence of his own people, 
in the loss of reverence for parents, for life, for marriage, for property, for character, and in the covetous feeling which is at the root of these evils lay the sources of political disunion and the loss of all personal dignity and manliness. End quote. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed.